Would you bless our brother, Johan Lukasi? 85 years old. As he clears his 85th year, would you give health to him and to his wife, Lily? Would you send help to continue the work that they've begun? Would you give them the opportunity to enjoy the time that you have given them, the opportunities to not only plant a church, but to travel and see your world? May your grace go before them and follow after them. Love them, empower them, and be with them. And here in this moment, as we gather in this room, as we gather online, love us, empower us, be with us, so that our church and Perimeter Church and City on a Hill and Lucasis and the people that meet and gather with them, that we might do all of the good work that you have given each and every single one of us to do through King Jesus our Lord who lives and reigns with you and your Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, John 21, I'm in verse 1. I want to read through verse 19. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, better translation, boys, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far off from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all, I think, I think it was the charcoal. Two things I'd like for you to pay attention to in verses 1 to 14. The first is when Jesus says to his disciples in verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat, they do it. Now that's important for us because in John's version of the story of Jesus, and we'll put this on the screen, there's, there's a theological vision here for us that goes something like this. The Word of God creates allegiance to God. The Word of God creates allegiance to God. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read later in that first chapter that God's children are those who receive God, those who believe. The word is pisteo there. And that word doesn't just mean to believe in the way that we might believe that water is wet. It's the kind of belief that looks like entrusting yourself to someone, living in loyalty to someone, giving your allegiance to someone. So now back to our fish story. Jesus says, cast the net on that side of the boat, even after they had caught zero fish the night before. And these are professional fishermen. Now, I am not a fisherman, so I'm not going to feel a kind of way if I don't catch any fish. But there are things that I believe that I'm good at. And when I don't, when I feel like I have failed, Lord Jesus be an invisibility cloak. So here you have these group of men who have failed at their professional job, and here comes this person. They don't know who it is. It says, why don't you cast the net over there? And they do it. Why? Because it isn't just that we are the people who do what God says. We believe that the Word of God and God the Word actually creates the willingness and ability to do what He wants us to do. That's the main point of verses 1 to 14. I don't want us to miss that because we want to be people who do what God says, but God is the one who gives us the willingness and the ability to do it. That's the first thing I want you to notice and pay attention to in verses 1 to 14. The second thing I need you to pay attention to is Peter. Peter in verses 1 to 11, uh, let's just say that Peter comes front and center. So here you have these seven men just kind of sitting around. They're lethargic. They're languishing. And then bam, here comes Peter going, let's go fishing. And so they do. He jumps up, they go fishing, and then he jumps out of the boat. Now, <laughs> we don't have time for all of this, but my sense when I read the Gospel of John is that, that John and Peter have a kind of rivalry 
There are places and ways all throughout this text where you see them almost competing with one another. They race to Jesus' tomb, you know, that kind of thing. But there's a playfulness here that shows up when Peter jumps out of the boat. John's calling the man clumsy. Here's how I know that. If you dig into the text, it doesn't say that he suited up and dove into the water. It says he threw himself into the water. That word throw by the mean, by the way, is the same word that you see in verse six for casting the net, which means that our boy Peter belly flops into the water. It ain't pretty. He jumps up, he jumps out. Everybody's on the beach. Jesus says, hey, well, some of y'all bring the fish over. Peter, he might be clumsy, but our dude is strong. Runs back to the boat, throws 153 fish in a net over his shoulder and hauls them back. Again, we can't get into all the details, but I want you to notice something. That in verses 1 to 11, Peter is at the center of action and activity. And then verses 12 to 14, Peter drifts to the periphery. I think it's because of the charcoal. Again, look at Peter, verses 1 to 11. The man is a Tasmanian devil, a whirling dervish. And then in verses 12 to 14, do you see Peter's name anywhere? I see them. I see disciples. It's almost like Peter has, it's almost like Peter's hiding. Verse 15, Peter and Jesus are taking a walk. I, I get that because if you look at verse 20, we're told that the disciple that Jesus loves is following after them. I like to imagine Jesus walking along the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, uh, skipping rocks as they walk. Before breakfast, Peter is all about that action. During breakfast, Peter goes into hiding. Before breakfast, Jesus see, uh, Peter seems to be trying to get Jesus' attention. During breakfast, it seems like he's trying to avoid Jesus' attention. Now, in verses 15 to 19, Peter's front and center. He has Jesus' full attention. Three times as they're walking, Jesus looks at Peter and asks him a simple question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? The first time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think he's asking the question, do you, love, do you think you love me more than these other guys? If you dig into the original language, you'll see that there's a difference between the way that Jesus says the word love and Peter says the word love. It's two different words in the original language. I don't know how much that matters. Here's what I do know. Here's what I know matters. Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to affirm his love for Jesus days after Peter had denied even knowing Jesus at all. The third time in verse 17, we're told that Peter, the Peo, Peter was grieved. In John's gospel, that word sometimes is translated as sorrow or pain. I think, I think what Peter's experiencing in verse 17 is shame. 
Can we talk about shame for a minute? Maybe a few minutes. We have spent the last few weeks exploring the reality of shame and anxiety in our life. And I think this text is an opportunity for us to explore how Jesus rewires our shame. How Jesus rewires our shame. I want to put this on the screen so we, we kind of are talking apples to apples here. This is from a separate research by Drs. Brene Brown and Kurt Thompson. Shame is a neurophysiological response to moments and memories that leave us believing that we are unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is a neurophysiological response to moments and memories where you and I come to believe that we are unworthy of love and belonging. That's a working definition for us, but I think that a description might help even more. So this, again, comes from the work of Dr. Brene Brown, and here are three inescapable realities of shame. The first one is this. Shame is in all of us. We feel shame in our bodies. When you see somebody who feels shame, their eyes and their head lower. They, they don't make eye contact with you. You can literally see their shoulders roll forward as if they're trying to protect themselves. I have this thing where there are nights in which I will wake up because I can feel what I would say is stress in my body, but I've come to believe that it's not just stress that I'm feeling. It's shame that I'm feeling because for me, shame shows up when I'm either worried about or have experienced some sense of failure. I feel it to the point that it can wake me up sometimes in the middle of the night. Shame is something that we experience in our bodies. Shame is something that we all experience in the stories we tell about ourselves. Let me just give you nine different stories that people like you and me come to believe out of our experience of shame. This is where we feel shame. I think we probably feel all of these, at least most of these in some way. I think maybe one of these might stand out to you. Nine ways that we experience and feel shame. Number one, I feel shame when I make mistakes. Number two, I feel shame when I ask for help and that person says no. Number three, I feel shame when I feel like I failed. That's mine. Number four, I feel shame when I feel like my deficiencies can't be fixed. Number five, I feel shame when I don't have the right answer. Number six, I feel shame when I second-guess myself after conflict. Number seven, I feel shame when I feel like someone has outwitted me. Number eight, I feel shame when I feel like someone has abandoned or betrayed me. Number nine, I feel shame when I haven't told the whole truth and being completely honest with myself or others. Now, to make it even more plain, we can say this. Shame is shame is bankruptcy. Shame is my spouse leaving me for somebody at the office. Shame is infertility. 
Shame is relational conflict. Shame is internet porn. Shame is the other side of eating an entire half gallon of ice cream while watching a Hallmark Christmas movie in July. Shame is hearing my parents fight in their room and wondering if I'm the only person who feels afraid right now. And on and on we could go with thousands and thousands of other stories that reinforce the reality that shame is in all of us, number one. Number two, we are all afraid to talk about shame. Whether it's real or perceived, I see and sense that someone is disappointed or disgusted by me. And that sense of disappointment or disgust begins to tell a story. It begins to retell the story of me to the point that I began to not only say this, but I believe this, that I am who shame says I am. And what that does to me, because shame means that I am unworthy of love and belonging, because it's not that I've just done those things, but I am those things in a moment. That what happens is, is that I don't stay connected to the people around me. I run and I hide. Even from the people I share a home with, I share a life with. There are parts of me or all of me that I keep at a distance because if I'm really unlovable and if I really am that disgusting, then why in the world would you want to see that or want to be anywhere near that? So we don't like to talk about shame, but that's the thing. The third reality says this, the less we talk about shame, the more that shame controls us. Shame does not like to be noticed. Shame does not like to be talked about. So here we are, talking about shame. Go back to Peter and Jesus for a minute. I am um, proposing that Peter is experiencing shame in verses 15 to 19. I am suggesting that the charcoal fire in John 21 has taken Peter back to the charcoal fire of John 18. Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? I am not. Hey, you're one of his disciples, ain't you? I'm not. Now, general life principle, if you build a bonfire, a redneck's going to show up. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? One more denial, a rooster crowing. And so maybe that's why in verses 12 to 14, Peter gets small. And he shrinks around another charcoal fire. the scary, powerful way that sights and sounds and smells can trigger us. Maybe that's why Jesus invites Peter to take a walk because you can see somebody when they begin to experience shame. And Jesus sees Peter and he loves Peter. And so after breakfast, he taps him on the shoulder with a whisper loud enough for everyone else to hear and says, hey, let's go take a walk. Now, what is Jesus doing? Let's use our words precisely here. I believe that Jesus is rewiring Peter's shame. 
He is not eradicating Peter's shame. He is rewiring it and redirecting it so that Peter can become the man that God created him to be. Here's what Jesus knows about shame. One, he knows that shame is not evil. Second, he knows that shame and sin often show up together, but they do not go together. I can sin and not feel shame, and sometimes I feel shame even though I haven't sinned or even done anything wrong. Jesus knows that the dark powers of sin and death, evil, wields shame like a weapon. That evil gets a hold of shame and uses it to dehumanizes us. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. That evil uses shame to shear off our human God-given capacity to create beauty and goodness. I think that might be why Jesus responds to Peter's affirmations of his love for him by giving him work to do. Think about it. If evil uses shame to try to ruin Peter, Jesus is going to use shame. Think about the charcoal. Think about the questions. He's going to use shame to bring Peter back to life. Peter, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to take good care of the people that I love. Peter, I want you to be the person and do the work that I've created you to be and to do. And Peter does it. Isn't that the message of verses 18 and 19? I think John's actually writing this after Peter's death. But he goes back to tell us the story going forward, and that is that Peter died leaving a legacy of beauty and goodness. Now, I don't know the particular ways that God wants to create beauty and goodness through you and me and us as a church. But I'm, I'm looking at this text, and I'm listening to this panel, and I'm wondering, when Jesus says, feed my lambs, might it be that our rabbi, savior, and king is looking in this room and looking down the hall at kids' ministry and looking down the hill at student ministry and saying, I am so proud and happy for the work that you've been doing. I want you to keep doing it. Might today be an opportunity for us to take one more step into the reality of being an intergenerational community. I don't want to dismiss or minimize the unique calling that God gives to Simon, son of John, 2,000 years ago. I certainly do not want to dismiss decades of sweat and prayers of men and women who have invested in the lives of children and students in our church. What I'm wondering is what God wants us to do now. How do we continue that legacy? For some of us who have been giving those sweat and prayers to kids and to students, my hope is that today would be a reaffirmation of what you're doing, that you would be encouraged and strengthened by the grace of God to continue the good work that you've begun. And for some of us, without guilt or pressure, but simply the invitation of our rabbi, savior, and king, that he might grab you, not everyone, but you, and invite you to take one more step so that we might continue this story that has been true for us for over 40 years, that Fellowship Bible Church is a home for children and students.
a home. See, it's a funny thing about home. Peter was fishing on his home lake, and he felt like he was a million miles from home because of shame. That's what shame does. Shame orphans us. Shame drags us far from home. But Jesus loves Peter, and he comes, and he finds him, and he brings him home. In Genesis, we learn and have come to believe that home is any place where we experience the grace of God. God creates people and he gives them a home, not just a place, but the place where he is with them in his presence, in his love, in his power. We call that grace. Home is anywhere where you and I experience the grace of God. We've come to believe because we've learned that Jesus left his forever home and he came and he experienced firsthand the toxicity of shame when evil gets a hold of it in his life and particularly in his death. We've learned and we've come to believe that Jesus died for us, for our sin and our salvation, that on the cross that he absorbed every ounce of toxicity that exists in our experience of shame so that we as his people here on this morning with full voices, ten toes down, keeping it a whole buck, we say this, Jesus' substitutionary death tells orphans like us, I am not who shame says I am. Now look at me. I need you to say this out loud with me because we need to remind each other and the world of this reality. Say it with me. I am not who shame says I am. We're going to have to do that again. You can say it out loud for the world to hear, or you can say it quiet enough to maybe believe it for yourself. Ready? I am not who shame. When your 17-year-old says it out loud, that gets you. See, now we're at the heart of the gospel. Now we're at the good news of this text. See, Peter's story is our story. Jesus went and found, Jesus and found Peter and brought him home. Do we not sing it? Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. Jesus comes and finds us and brings us home. And again, what is home? It's any place that we experience the grace of God, but home is a place where you are fully known and fully loved without hesitation or restraint. That is who God is for us in his grace. And y'all, that is who we are for each other and for the world around us. See, don't miss this. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus that is contained in this story. Because Jesus is the saving king, we have a home in God and we are a home for each other and for the world. Please don't let that pass you by. Because Jesus is the saving king. We have a home in God. And we are a home for each other and for our neighbors and for the world around us. You know how we say you belong here? Do you know what that means? 
It means that your belonging is not tied to your behavior. It means that we know that your story is scary, but we're not scared. It means that if we follow through on our heart's desire, you will have at least one person who is willing to crawl in the shame pit with you so that you will not be alone. Why do we do that? Because that's what Jesus has done for us. What he is doing for us and what he will always and forever do for us. So fellowship, do we love Jesus? Then let's continue to take care of our youngest and weakest and most vulnerable members of this flock. Fellowship, do we love Jesus? Then let's prioritize taking care of each other. Everything else about being a church grows out of that seedbed. Fellowship, do we love Jesus? Then let's remind ourselves and declare it to the world by the way we love each other through thick and thin over the course of days and weeks and months and years and decades. Because Jesus is the saving king. And because Jesus is the saving king, we have a home in God. And we are a home for each other and our neighbors. Let's pray. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, a symbol of suffering and shame. And bearing shame and scoffing rude, there in my place, in your place, in our place, Jesus condemned you stood. And now, and here's when it gets good, my sin, my shame, my shame. The bliss of this glorious thought, my shame, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. And all God's people said, amen.